I will write it in the dust, and it will become part of your life. Everything good he could think of to ask for was incomplete and flawed in some way. While each choice fulfilled one particular hope or dream, it left some other hope or dream unprotected and potentially unfulfilled. That was why he had been sitting there for a long time. So I want us to, as we sit, as we listen to the word, I want you to ask, what would you say to Jesus to write in your dust? And uh, because really when we think of who we are in relationship to God, we need to remember where we come from. And Abraham really was the first person in the Bible who recognized that he was from dust. Uh, in fact, he says in Genesis 18:27 when he's talking to God who had showed up with two angels to uh, discuss with him uh, his future son. And remember uh, Sarah and he, when they heard about it, Sarah laughed and uh, God joined in it saying, you laughed and I suppose they all had a big chuckle because God was introducing something amazing into this 90 to 100 year old couple that they could not imagine and with good reason when Isaac was born his name meant laughter because they also were by naming him joining in with the the great laughter that had come from God breaking into their lives but Abraham said when he began to talk to God in that situation and God had decided to destroy the cities of Sodom and Gomorrah because they were so evil he said he said I will go down and see if these cities are as evil as what I've been hearing about. I love the way that story is told in all of its theological difficulty. You know. But uh, Genesis 18:27, Abraham said, Let me take it upon myself to speak to the Lord, I who am but dust and ashes. Because Genesis two opens up with the Lord God formed man from the dust of the ground and breathed into his nostrils the breath of life and the man became a living being. And Genesis 3 verse 14 says the Lord God said to the serpent and I love this because you know the serpent Satan the evil one was trying to bring down Adam and Eve destroy them in any way he could they were Adam which means dust or dirt And for whatever reason, he hated them because of his pride and wanted to bring them down, destroy God's creation. And so God says to him as part of his punishment, because you have done this, cursed are you among all the animals and among all wild creatures. Upon your belly you will go and dust you shall eat. In case you didn't remember that my plan is to bring this dust into my presence and glorify my name by this animated dust that you hate so much, you are going to eat dust for the rest of your life. Genesis 3.19 says, and it was a word of difficulty put upon uh, Adam, by the sweat of your face you will eat bread until you return to the ground, for out of it you were taken. You are dust and to dust you shall return. Now, I know that's heavy, but remember one thing. 
And uh, God himself remembers that we're dust, and because he remembers that we're dust, he has a particular compassion for people, a particular love for us. Psalm 103.14 says that he knows that how we were made, and he remembers that we are dust. You see, so... God doesn't forget what kind of people we are. We may have very high expectations for ourselves. God knows who we really are. He knows how He made us. He, he remembers that we're dust. And in Psalm 104, 29, the Bible says, When you hide your face, speaking to God, when you hide your face, they are dismayed. When you take away their breath, they die and return to their dust. Psalm 113, 7 says, he raises the poor from the dust and lifts the needy from the ash heap. For some reason, the people we love the most are those we hurt the most. The people we're closest to are perhaps the ones that we are most dangerous to as well. So one of our big jobs in relationships is to protect others from ourselves when we are at our worst. Think about that. One of your biggest jobs and one of my biggest jobs is to protect others from myself when I'm at my worst. So, even though we are but dust, these relationships can bring us great joy, comfort and connection, but they can also create pain, anxiety and loneliness. This is true of family, it's true of church, it's true of, true of work and other types of partnerships. So what is the sermon in a paragraph about today? And we can flash that up right now. Humility is a kind of vulnerability that comes from dependence on God to meet our needs in close relationships. It refuses to vandalize the respect and honor that belongs to others by insisting on one's own rights or power at the expense of others. In relationships, humility says... You get to be you, and I get to be me, and we both share the joy of being ourselves together in this relationship. Now, that may sound, sound simple, but it's difficult in real life. Because a lot of us really, you know, it's, a lot of us are, are like me. We have uh, big egos, and the tendency is to grow your ego at the expense of someone else's. You see, to, to make yourself more important to, and diminish the importance of the other person in your life. Now, having a big ego is not a problem, really, as long as you're not robbing the strength from other people. You know, we can all adjust to each other. But, uh, uh, but so, so uh, uh, this is going to be what we're talking about today. And, and uh, so I want to read that passage that I alluded to, Philippians 4, 2, and look at it a little more carefully. I urge Euodia and I urge Syntyche to be of the same mind in the Lord. yes. I ask all, you also, loyal companion, help these women, for they have struggled beside me in the work of the gospel together with Clement and the rest of my co-workers whose names are in the book of life. So these two women were and were currently God's fellow workmen, Paul's fellow workmen. They had struggled together. They had worked together. And uh, in fact, I really do think that it doesn't make sense to see them as anything else but important leaders in the church. For whatever reason, they were important leaders in the church. They were Paul's fellow workers. We're not talking about uh, people that, uh, 
that don't have influence. These are two women who had great influence in, um, in the church. In fact, the whole letter is written to the bishops or overseers and deacons. That's what verse one, chapter 1, verse 1 says. And we need to realize that these two women uh, were probably part of that circle of, of bishops and deacons. In, in fact, there are other women who, uh, there's at least one other woman who's called a deacon in Romans 16, who's Phoebe, who carried the letter of Romans to Rome. And Phoebe, as the carrier of the letter, would have been rehearsed by Paul to read this letter and answer questions about the letter and, fu- and fill any uh, missing news in so that people could understand and contextualize the letter better, which means the first person who ever preached the book of Romans was a woman. I mean, come on, ladies, that's, that's, that's pretty amazing. Now, uh, the early church uh, had, it was very different from some traditional churches. And in fact, we do find, uh, and I, I got a chance to do some research about this when I was working on my PhD, that uh, there are women elders mentioned in, of churches mentioned in inscriptions in the East in, in Rome, in the West, and in North Africa, up to and including the middle of the 4th century. So that's a pretty, pretty important fact as well. Now, uh, why do I say that? Well, because as he addresses them, you know, it's, it's, not, it's, it's interesting to some people that he doesn't say, now you elders need to figure this problem out. Because when he addresses Euodia and Syntyche, and Clement and this fellow yoke, this unnamed yoke fellow in uh, chapter four, verse two, he actually is addressing the leaders of the church. These are the people who need to get it together because the leaders of the church are not working together. The church is in danger of falling apart. And in fact, Paul was saying, "Have I run my race in vain? Have I spent all this time with you in vain? I want you guys to get it together so that this mission won't be a disaster." And, uh, and so it's, uh, it's an important thing that Paul is asking them to do. For whatever reason, then, the church found itself in a very vulnerable position in which these broken relationships between two saints was threatening its very existence. We could tell the story in a lot of different ways. And I experimented with maybe telling it three or four different possible ways. It would just be me inventing possible scenarios. But that's good. Let's, let's invent one because we need to understand that this is a real uh, problem, and we all have been a part of problems like this ourselves. When a, when a relationship in a family threatens the family, the well-being of the family, when a relationship in a, in a business threatens the well-being of the business, when a relationship in some other kind of partnership uh, threatens the well-being of that partnership, and we've seen how great relationships can go sour. The Philippians had been preparing this gift, and this is my scenario, if you were to ask me, and you didn't, but I'm here preaching, so I'll, I'll tell you what it, what it probably was. So the Philippians, the Philippians had been preparing a gift to send to Paul. Paul is in prison and he needs support or he'll die in prison. It wasn't like today where there are ample taxes raised to support prisoners in prison, as if that were something that was a, uh, a social... Uh, uh, social necessity. At that point, it, prisoners, you're fending for yourself if you get into trouble. So you may or may not survive prison before you go before, before a judge and are judged to either live or die uh, or be exiled. 
So the Philippians had been preparing this gift to support Paul while he was in prison, and they were praying for his release. Euodia and Syntyche may have felt, may, possible, felt a twinge of competition about how much to send or the quality of what was being sent. I can imagine how relationships could go sour over that, over a fundraising situation. Can you? You know, we're talking about money. We're talking about people putting their heart and soul into some project. Perhaps jealousy raised its ugly head. Each one did feel a special relationship with Paul. And I think here's where the problem really was. And there was only one person in their minds who could be Paul's best friend. At any rate, by the time the gift was gathered together, the church was falling apart. And Paul's whole response is to plead for a humble approach to reframe the, the, the whole discussion and the problem so that they could see this relationship in a new light. So the first major point that I'd like to make today, and based on Philippians 2, 1 through 11, is that humility is the reasonable response to being stunned by God's grace. See, and, and, the, and even though in, in uh, this chapter, chapter 2, verses 1 through 11, Paul does address the problem of humility, he doesn't open the... He doesn't diagnose the situation. He doesn't break, us, break down what humility really is. A lot of sermons do. I could do that today. I'm not. I'm going to follow the text. And uh, so Paul says, if there is any encouragement in Christ, any consolation from love, any sharing in the Spirit, any compassion and sympathy, make my joy complete, be of the same mind, having the same love, being in full accord and of one mind. Do nothing from selfish ambition or conceit, but in humility regard others as better than yourselves. Let each of you look not to your own interests, but to the interests of others. Let the same mind be in you that was in Christ Jesus, who though he was in the form of God, and that phrase form of God means had the very glory that God had, had the same status and power, had that very glory. He did not regard equality with God something to be exploited. He emptied himself, taking the form of a slave and being born in human likeness and being found in human form, which again is that glory of a human or status of a human, a lowly status. He became obedient to the point of death, even death, on a cross. Therefore, God also highly exalted him and gave him the name that is above every name, so that at the name of Jesus every knee should bend in heaven and on earth and under the earth, and every tongue should confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of the Father. Wow. What an amazing statement. And notice how we observe how Paul's dealing with this pastoral problem dealing with a problem that we all often deal with. How do we overcome lack of humility? How do we overcome that, that thing that's in us, as he says in chapter 2, verse 1 through 3, I think a pretty good uh, quick description of it. Uh, he says, do nothing from selfish ambition or conceit. And that word conceit is that, that little feeling we get 
when someone really irritates us. Something they do, something they say, something makes us angry about them and we want to take them down a notch. That's what conceit is. And so he says, do nothing from selfish ambition. And selfish ambition, of course, is that when you see someone else doing something, you know, you want to have the glory by outdoing them, of course. You know, and uh, that happens between families. It happens between churches. It happens between members of families. But the beginning of this is, Paul, is, is the major request in the whole letter, and that is uh, if there is any encouragement in Christ. And what that is really, if we could break it down a little bit better, if I were to translate it, I love translations, one of the things that I do. If, if you were to see my translation, here's what it would say. And I'm, I'm uh, reading from the NRSV. I know you Philippians want to encourage me in Christ. And I know you've wanted to console me from love, the love that you have for me. And I know you've wanted to share with me out of what the Spirit is telling you to share. I know that you have wanted to show me compassion and sympathy. But look, my joy is incomplete with the gift that you have sent. What I really want is this. Be of the same mind. Have the same love. Be in accord with one another. That's what it means to be of the same mind. Don't do anything from selfish ambition or a desire to take the other down a notch, but in humility regard others as more important than yourself. Let each of you look not to your own goals and dreams only, but support others as they're trying to get their goals and dreams fulfilled. Let the same mind that was in Christ Jesus be in you, etc., etc., etc. So it's a request, and it's a request based on what they've done. They've done something, they think they've done something really good. In the process, things are falling apart, and Paul asks them, look, turn this, guy, turn this around, guys. And so the rest of the letter builds up to that point when he's going to name names. And prayerfully, there's going to be a little bit of repentance. So that's the first point. So it's the reasonable response to being stunned by God's grace. Now, I want to back off just a second and ask, what kind of a gospel do we hear behind these words about Jesus emptying himself and being exalted to the right hand of God at the end. What do we hear? And here's, I tried to put it in just a few words. This is the gospel I'm hearing. God is a Father who loves you and has a wonderful purpose for your life. Our own sin and corruption keeps us from seeing God as God or grasping the plan that He has for our lives and it keeps us from seeing ourselves and others as they really are. But all the sin and corruption in the world has not stopped God from loving you. The incarnation proves it. The sacrificial life and ministry of Jesus demonstrate it. The cross nails it. 
The resurrection from the dead ensures it. The Holy Spirit sent from heaven makes it real in our lives. God breaks through all our confusion and sin by sending Jesus, His Son, into the world. He lived and died and overcame death to set us free from sin and restore us to an amazing relationship with God. God will continue to renew our hearts and minds and entire lives by the Spirit of Christ as we live as part of the family of God, the church, through the people who follow Jesus. He is renewing the, internal, the, the, etern- the entire world. People get with the program. <laughs> yeah. So that's the Gospel that I hear behind these words. It's an amazing gospel. I love it. it. It gets me up in the morning. It keeps me encouraged in the day. I've been reciting this as I wrote it down today. I thought, uh, the other day. I thought, man, this is a great gospel. This is good news. And so the good news, folks, was the answer to the problem of lack of humility. What we need when we get into that place where we want to outdo others, get more of the glory, take somebody down a notch, hurt them in some way. What we need, we may need a lot of things. We may need wise counsel. We we really need the Gospel. We need to hear again that God loves us. We need to be stunned into silence by His grace. We need to be stunned into worship by what He's done for us, what, what He's done in our world. Thank God. Wow. And so, really, this is the message I wanted to give this morning. Alright? There are a few more minutes left. So, there are two more points in the chapter. I'm not going to develop them very much because I think that this is what we need to hear. But the second thing, the second point is in chapter 2, verse 12 through 18. I wish I had time to preach that whole bit just don't think we've got time for it. But humility starts with obedience to wise counsel. That's right. It may start with obedience to wise counsel. I'm all for counseling. In fact, I've been to wise counselors many times in my life. Uh, there have been times in our lives where, where, uh, where the stress has been so big, the problem's so great, uh, my wife has gone... Time to go to a counselor. And guess what? We go to a counselor to work things out. And that's okay. I am not ashamed of saying that at all. And, and you know, the, I'm just being really vulnerable here by saying that. You know, uh, Christians need to understand that they don't have to live up to a certain um, expectation to be Christians. God meets us exactly where we are. And the spiritual thing to do is to admit that and joyfully, maybe with a little bit of fear and trembling, admit our weakness and say, yeah, I really do need help. I really do need help. Um, In my own life, I have struggled with depression at times. And uh, pretty deep depression until... I, I was able to admit it. I didn't do anything about it. And just uh, the, the depression would come and go and would get dark at times. And so I went to a doctor. I said, Doc, I've got this problem. It, look, this is what's happening. And the doctor prescribed an antidepressant for me. And I can tell you 
that one of the most spiritual decisions I take under Christ is to take that every day. Because when I don't, within a week or so, I'm getting to a dark place. Now, you know, I may wish that I didn't need it. I didn't ask to have that kind of a, of a weakness, but I have it. And I live with it in a spiritual way by being humble enough to admit that I need help. So, humility may start with obedience to wise counsel, but I want to, I want to take another step. And that is, the Spirit of Christ transforms obedience into the character and peaceful mind of Christ. It's the Spirit that is at work transforming us, healing us, changing us over time. And I know when I'm in my Father's house in heaven, I'm not going to need that anymore. But I'm not going to stop being needy until the day that I walk into His presence. I will be needy and you will be needy. And one of the most important things we can do is admit our need to hear wise counsel, to respond to the Holy Spirit, let the Holy Spirit change us, transform us, and, and go on with our lives in, that, in Jesus Christ. Okay, the third point is that the Spirit of God also works through the example of others in the body of Christ to fill in the gaps. And that's what the rest of this chapter 2, verse 19 through uh, 30 are all about. Timothy, Epaphroditus, Paul's telling them newsy things about them, but he's also saying, look, these people have risked their lives for the gospel. They are an example for you. And I, I, one of the things I, I just I love to say to people is that, well, first of all, I love being a part of CF. It is a church of humble and mature people, lots of humility and lots of maturity. And I love being a part of the elders. They're some of the, the, some of the greatest men I know in the world. I just, it's, it's an honor and it's a joy to be a part of it. And I can tell you this, Jamie is one of the humblest men I know. I mean, uh, man, I, I get choked up thinking about it. But he's a, he, is a, he is a humble man and he would not want me to say that because you know when you, once you get that term humble or humility, it's liable to you know, change something about you so that you don't feel that you're not that way anymore. You know? but, but, but that's, I look to his example because it's one of the best examples I've ever seen of that kind of humility, just like Epaphroditus in that, uh, in that chapter, chapter 2, verses uh, in the end uh, of 19 through 30. Uh, so they fill in the gaps. These brothers and sisters... Take note of them, the ones that have learned this lesson. Learn, learn how to be vulnerable. Learn how not to vandalize the respect and honor of other people. Uh, learn how to be affirming and positive and learn how to uh, hang on to Christ for dear life in difficult situations. Look to them. Look at their example. It will help fill in the gaps that the wise counsel has left. So... These are the, are the major points that I wanted to give this morning, and I want to come back to the story that I started with. The story, remember, remember the story about dust, dust on the table, the, the other one saying, I can write something in the dust. 
Here's the rest of the story. So everything good he could think of to ask was incomplete and flawed in some way, while each choice fulfilled one hope or dream, it left some other hope or dream unprotected and potentially unfulfilled. This was why he had been sitting there for so long. It's time, said the other one, reminding him again. I know, I know, he replied. What shall I write in your dust? The man took a deep breath. He was ready to make his decision. Your name! Your name! Write your name in my dust! Suddenly, it seemed as if light and song surrounded them as the other one moved a single finger toward the tabletop. And this morning, what I want to ask us is when we think about all the blessings that we could have, we think about putting humility into practice in our lives, when we think about difficulties in peace and relationships, what we're really needing is for the Spirit of God and the Son of God, to the glory of God Father, to write the name of Jesus in our dust. That's what living a human life is all about. And I ask you, I'm going to ask everyone to stand up, ask the praise team to come up, ministry team. Maybe something that was said this morning, the Spirit of God moved on in a powerful way to remind you of your need. You know, what God is calling us to do this morning is to open our hearts, open ourselves to His grace. Jesus emptied Himself to show us the loving heart of the Father. He poured Himself out. I can't live up to that standard. I know it's impossible. But what I can do is to begin to be a better father, better brother, better sister. I can begin to follow Him in those little steps, those baby steps in life. Maybe God is calling and encouraging us and challenging us with humility this morning. So whatever the need may be, you may need just prayer. You may need to receive a blessing. Just come forward. We have a ministry team here to lay hands on you, bless you, prayer. We all need prayer. We're all desperately in need of encouragement. And so I encourage you, let Jesus write His name in your dust. Take a step this morning.